1: The book today is titled, No Time for Diets. Our author, L. Raines, MS, RDN, CDE, whatever those designations are, and the author, joins me from California. Welcome, Linda, to the program. Good morning, Jay. This is a a long designation of uh, assigned uh, titles, MS, RDN, CDE. Could you explain for my listeners what all of those designations represent?
2: Sure. Uh, MS is a Master of Science level. Um, RDN is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and CDE is a certified diabetes educator.
1: You've been busy in the uh, arena of food, as most of us are, but yours has a different purpose. What inspired you to put this particular book into print?
2: Well, Jay, as a registered dietitian and nutritionist since 1973, I've been helping patients and clients learn how to eat healthy and make sure that they can manage their weight appropriately. I've counseled thousands of people who have so much misinformation about weight management. I felt that this book could help to dispel some of the myths that are out there and help steer people towards a little bit more sane solution in their challenges with their own weight management
1: you have included a lot of chapters it's not a, an extensive book 145 pages so an individual can pick and choose the topic that they probably need to uh, focus on chapter 6 workplace wonders power on the job self monitor and stimulus control now food stimulus is one thing that most american eaters are challenged with we have uh, we have commercials all the time when i'm trying to control what i'm what my intake is i'm i'm Low sugar is what my uh, my goal is, and nearly every second commercial has a lot of tempting desserts and other things being broadcast on television. How do you counteract that with your with your uh, clients?
2: Well, one of the things that we we try to focus on is is teaching people what how to read the labels and to give them an indication that carbohydrate, even though it's the uh, the prime fuel nutrient that's our primary fuel nutrient we don't necessarily need to eat all the refined carbohydrates so fresh fruits and vegetables whole grain breads and cereals are the ones that really need to be focused on that's going to give us the energy without the, uh, the spike in our blood glucose so we want to kinda of keep a, a nice even keel on that one
1: uh, my wife has encountered some issues and it seems to be a growing trend that there is some reaction to gluten in the diet, and uh, she has had some medical issues related to that. What are you finding?
2: Well, gluten is the is the newest big hype, that's certain. There are uh, certainly people who have celiac brew and issues with gluten intolerance, but I think that if you focus more on increasing the fiber rather than... Um, And, and, and truly gluten is, is part of a processed carbohydrate, uh, because you, you develop the gluten when you need or you process the food. So it, it actually may have some basis, in fact, as far as the gluten intolerance. I don't think generally before we were, we started making breads, there were, there were very many, uh, products that had gluten in them.
1: The, the the wheat products have been modified in the American diet, and uh, she feels like that might be the issue with her. She can eat uh, gluten-type products in Europe, and it doesn't bother her. If she eats something here, uh, she gets mm-hmm. the equivalent of an ulcerated pain in her stomach. So we have had some serious concerns about that. And she, after four or five years of trying to figure out what was going on, discovered that this probably was the issue.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It may, be, it may be the gluten and it may be also linked to some of the foods that they, the food additives that they use in products. Right,
1: right, highly processed because foods. Because in,
2: in Europe they have a very much different idea on food supply. They are, are much more focused on less processing than we are in this country.
1: Diabetes, what is your focus, what is your uh, observation of the rise in diabetes in the United States?
2: So, right, well, I think that unfortunately un- unfortunately for most of us there is a problem with too many calories and mm-hmm. and when you become overweight you actually start to stimulate uh, problems with the pancreas providing too much insulin to counteract all the uh, all the simple sugars body is is very focused on trying to keep our blood sugar within a a healthy range. And if you are overloading it with sugars and cakes and candy and pies and everything that's highly processed, the pancreas has to work overtime. Um, The islets of Langerhans in the pancreas are what produce our insulin. And over time, if they're overstimulated, um, they're going to start to wear out. Uh, Overweight is one of the one of the risk factors for developing diabetes,
1: and some thin people also have been uh, susceptible to diabetes.
2: That's that's true. Well, there are two types of diabetes: type one, which is an autoimmune deficiency, mm-hmm. and that is uh, focused when the the pancreas just completely shuts down; it um, it doesn't make any endogenous insulin. The the type 2 diabetes, you make insulin, but you don't make enough of it or you don't make it fast enough. And that's that's generally associated with overweight. Many times type 1 diabetes, um, the, the patient is not overweight in any way. In fact, they may be underweight. But two different types of diabetes, um, both are associated with um, you know the risk factors for the pancreas not functioning properly.
1: Linda, as you began writing this, who did you hope to reach with your message?
2: Um, when I started writing it, I was basically writing to the people who were working, that I was working with, that they were underestimating their successes, that they weren't giving themselves enough credit for what what successes they had done. As I've continued to write over the years, it's more focusing on the motivation and changing the habits that need to be changed and keeping the healthy habits. So, you know, getting rid of the extra calories and keeping the good thoughts.
1: Would you consider your book a motivational book rather than a uh, how-to to keep out of trouble?
2: I think it's both. I think I, I, there's certainly a lot of, of of information about motivating yourself and making, making uh, things turn around a little bit so that you can... You can see that how, how good you really are. And I think motivation is a is key. But I also think that it gives some good information about nutrition and um, how to actually figure out how many calories you need and what to do about it, changing your environment. So, you know, don't leave the cookie jar on the table if you're trying to avoid extra calories.
1: Boy, isn't that the truth. So I
2: think it's kind of a little bit of both.
1: And Thanksgiving is coming up. We have to be uh, on guard about. Safe snacks—snacks uh, snacks that may satisfy our hunger needs, but not overstimulate our other uh, fat-accumulating uh, parts of our parts of our, uh, I guess, our dietary system.
2: That that's really true, Jay. When when you look at um, hunger, there are really three types of hunger. It's there's physical hunger, which is that's when we should eat, and there's emotional hunger, which is well, something didn't go right today, or uh, something didn't exactly turn out the way you wanted to. So let let me just have a candy bar and think about that mm-hmm. or a situational hunger where you've got all the best intentions, but then the folks in the, in the coffee room are going to, uh, they've brought in some donuts or they've brought in some extra leftover cake from a party over the weekend. And, and so that's a situation where you're sort of there and it's, it looks good and that's really not those are the times you need to not eat you need to walk away and do do something else maybe productive
1: (laughs) well I when I'm out and and uh, taking care of business uh, running errands and that type of thing I often will run out of uh, gas I need I need fuel in my body and uh, the easiest thing to do is go to the closest fast food supplier and that's a bad choice but how do you avoid that a meals in a rush, travel and restaurant management? How do you, how do you uh, focus on eating properly?
2: Well, when you are rushing around doing everything, if you can do a little pre-planning prior to, um, if you you know you're going to have a busy day, you can plan snacks. In, Ziploc baggies are wonderful for taking snacks along. Uh, something like uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, um, sliced. Uh, sliced cucumbers or or carrot sticks, something that you can munch on and that will take the the hunger edge away so that when you drive past that McDonald's or the Burger King and the smell is just overwhelming, you've got another choice. The problem that we tend to have is that we don't pre-plan and then all of a sudden life hits us Mm -hmm. and we say, oh, I've got to eat something, I haven't eaten anything all day and then some folks are going out to the cheesecake factory or not to malign the cheesecake factory, but some, some place that, you know, you have to, you have to deal with, with life. That's the, the pre-planning is probably the the thing that's going to give you the best chance for success.
1: Oh, that's true. I uh, have been put on a, Eat grass diet. I think that's what my wife feeds me. I'm not sure. She puts it in a blender and chews it all up and then hands it to me. It doesn't taste bad, but I will tell you this for whatever reason, and uh, there may be two or three apples in there. There may be some spinach. There may be some other type of very healthy uh, organic vegetable that's been blended. I still come away from eating that as though I haven't eaten anything. Is that psychological or is there something else going on?
2: Well, it depends on on the nutrient density and the foods that you're eating. You can eat a lot of vegetables and fruits and not have a lot of calories, and you you may actually have a calorie deficit. Um, The carbohydrates, breads, grains, um, they will provide you energy just like fruits and vegetables, but in a, a much smaller area, so you have a piece of bread and you've got, more calories if you High put some butter on that mm-hmm. than three cups of vegetables and fruits.
1: What is your first personal favorite snack food that uh, you take when you're on the road?
2: Oh, my first personal snack food is Trail Mix. Trail Mix. <laughs> well, it
1: has a lot of, a little bit of everything, complex carbohydrates well, it and does also because the, other...
2: the nuts. You know, yeah. the nuts, and then it has the it, it, you were even mentioning a little bit of sweetness in the dried fruit, and um, it's it's handy. I don't have to refrigerate it, and it's helpful. It's got so many nutrients in in the nuts and the and the uh, dried fruit. You, the only problem with dried fruit is that you can eat a lot of calories in just uh, a little bit of fruit because it's you know when you think of it, it's if you have a dried apple, you can take one apple and dry it, and it's very easy to fit in your hand, and you could probably eat three or four of those dried apples, whereas if you take a fresh apple, it will take you a long time to eat three or four of them, and you'll probably get sick of eating them before you'll eat all three of
1: them. Uh, Good advice, good tip. Linda, there's a lot of books in the marketplace dealing with diet. Why is yours different?
2: Um, I believe my book, No Time for Diet, is different because it's not your typical diet book. It focuses on the power that you have in your world rather than following some artificial guidelines or avoidance of any one particular food or food group. It's a a self-help book focusing on the power that you can have to become a healthier you.
1: Definitely needed by everyone I know. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Linda, take a couple of paragraphs or a couple of sentences and introduce your book, No Time for Diets, to my listeners and get them interested in getting their own personal copy.
2: Well, I, I believe that, um, that No Time for Diets is, is the voice of sanity in, in the world of misinformation. It, it provides a path to permanent changes in habits, and it provides a wealth of information on, on sound nutrition principles so that people can actually achieve a healthy lifestyle and, and successful weight management that lasts.
1: Excellent. The title of the book again is No Time for Diets. My guest has been author and several other designations, L. Raines, that's Linda, last name spelled R-A-Y-N-E-S. So, listeners, if you are looking for some good advice on addressing some problems with your diet, this is a book you need to get a copy of. It's only 145 pages, and Linda Raines has been my guest. Linda, where do we get copies of your book?
2: Uh, you can get the copies at Potterhouse. Um, you can go online authorhouse.com. It's in available in hardcover, uh, paperback, and it's also available in ebook.
1: Do you have a website yet that deals with nutritional things?
2: I have a website. I'm in the process of working with Authorhouse. Um, we're trying to link both sites. So my my website is um, no time for com.
1: Excellent. Should be easy to find, and they can keep in touch and learn some excellent tips on how to have a better lifestyle thank you linda for joining me today
2: thank you jay i much appreciate it
1: for author talk this is jay douglas barker
0: you're listening to author talk we'll be back right after these messages
3: have you heard
0: Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Authorhouse. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
1: Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The latest project from author Carlos V. Conejo is titled Different Coins in the Fountain, Volume 1 of 2. Volume 1 contains 54 stories. Volume 2, which is a continuation of Volume 1, has 42 stories. The stories are standalone stories, that is, they are independent from each other so that these books can be read by anyone in any sequence that the reader chooses. The back cover of the book gives this bit of information that's probably helpful to those of you who will become readers of his books. There's no particular reason why they should be read in the way the author sequenced them. The reader can select stories based on the time there is to read one or more stories. The books are designed for busy people who need to escape from the problems of work, family, or self-imposed rituals for governing activities of the day. And his advice is please read these stories to explore and enhance that which is not yet part of your day or evening accomplishments. The author is described like this. Carlos V. Corneo was born in San Francisco, California in 1929 and attended San Francisco Public Schools. He received two Master's of Arts degrees from San Francisco State University. He served in the Korean Police Action War in the United States Marine Corps. After returning to civilian life, he married and fathered three children, became a teacher in the San Francisco School District in 1955. During his 40 years in education, he loved having contact with students and other professionals, and after serving in seven principalships and other administrative posts, He became superintendent of schools and decided to travel extensively, especially to journeys to Europe, Asia, and throughout North America. At present, he's dedicated his life to penning his stories and being homebody, growing tomatoes, flowers, and continue to appreciate life. We understand now why he's not able to join us live. His words to the reader are, Thank you for reading the flourishes of my mind. From the book, Different Coins from the fountain. Mitchell reads and thinks of the Great Gatsby. No one who had known Mitchell Blake as a teenager would have ever predicted the great change which he made of himself. He was a reader of books, but also a kid displaying little interest in anything. He lived in his T-shirts, shorts, and Nike sports shoes. He didn't bother to put on socks or even to get a haircut very often. The change came when he first read F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby. Later, he saw the movie and loved The Great Gatsby. When both his parents were killed in an automobile accident and the insurance companies awarded 21-year-old Mitchell over $3 million, Mitchell focused on who he wished to become. He acquired a 1953 Austin Healey in mint condition. He purchased a nice home in Newport, Connecticut his French doors closets, displayed his numerous khaki-colored trousers, oxford cloth faded blue shirts, and shiny brown shoes of all kinds. He was not at the economical level of the Great Gatsby, but he had hopes that his promising technology stocks would make great profits and allow him to host a few parties. In the winter days, there was little to do in Newport, so he loaded two garment bags into his Austin Healy and was off to the nearby big city. Once he arrived there, he checked into the penthouse suite of a four-star hotel and ate his only hot meal of the day because he still had a few hours of daylight left. He decided to take a long walk. As he walked, he saw one of the lighted buildings and entered because it was a library. He found the place nearly empty. A young woman librarian was behind the main checkout counter. She was unlike any librarian he had formerly known. She was the kind of woman you'd expect to see modeling at an automobile show. She could have been distracting and selling expensive cars. Reading from another one of the author's favorite stories, this one titled, Having a Gangster for an Uncle, Antonio and Giovanni Left Palermo Seven Years Before. They both took construction jobs as welders during the building of the New York skyline in the 20's. During the time they worked in New York, both of them lived in the same apartment. Things changed when Giovanni's uncle learned from a friend that a young lady in her mid-twenties wanted to immigrate to America and to marry a nice Italian man. Giovanni took his opportunity and sent the money for her to sail to America. When Genevieve arrived at Ellis Island, it seemed like there was chaos on a greater scale than in her native Sicily. She thought she had brought all the right papers, but found out there was more papers that were needed. After a brief stay at Ellis Island, she was on a boat for a short ride to New York City, the city she could see from her island stop. Genevieve was able to be documented with the name that was her own. Many other persons were documented with new names because the process for allowing them into America was very hurried and rushed. Like many others, she pinned her name card to her lapel to be ready to be identified by Giovanni. She's on the list of arrivals for that day, and Giovanni had permission from his work to take the day to make his arrangements to marry. Giovanni had made plans for this, his new life. He moved into a three-bedroom apartment that was not far from the small two-bedroom apartment that he had shared with his friend, Antonio. He had purchased an inexpensive ring, and Antonio had identified the priests who agreed to be on call to marry Genoviva and Giovanni on her arrival. From the Hum Piojo was up in years. He didn't know the meaning of age. He only knew that certain happenings in his life began before others. He and his wife Encanto were the last survivors in their respective families. They had buried Piojo's only son, Polga, a month ago. The Piojo side of the family had distinctive nicknames because they were very small in stature and their tight skins were sufficient to cover the outline of their bones. Encanto was taller than Piojo. She outweighed him by more than 20 pounds. She was a good-looking woman of about 70 or maybe 80 years of age. And finally, Billy's detour. From the front gate, Billy stood without moving. He was dressed in dark clothes, and on this moonless night, the house was only a dim outline. It was a perfect setting for what he intended. He had cased the house in daylight and knew it didn't have a garage. There was no car near the gate. There was a high probability that this was a summer beach home and empty. His watch indicated that it was only 12 o'clock midnight. Convinced of the low risk, Billy moved around the house to where he felt there was a back door. He removed the small crowbar he had hanging on his carpenter's leather apron. He was about to pry the back door open when he discovered it to be unlocked. Billy had left his car a small distance from this beach home. By doing so, he would not raise suspicion should any neighboring driver go by and detect a strange auto by this rather isolated home. This meant that he would have to carry whatever he could pawn. He was interested in small items such as antiques, jewelry, tools, kitchen knives, and whatever else he saw that could be carried back to his car. He entered the home noiselessly. He couldn't see anything, so he slowly moved forward with soft steps and with his hands stretched out in front of him. He had to seek out the bedroom to ensure that no one was in bed. As he proceeded into what appeared to be the living room, he heard something. Then he definitely heard a growl that sounded as if it came from a large dog. He was about to run to the back door when he heard a man telling him, Son, you better sit down in that easy chair in front of you or I will turn buck loose and you'll have to be hospitalized. Billy didn't know what to do until he heard the dog bark. Yes, he could tell by its bark that it had to be a very large dog. He sat down, stumbling into a large soft chair. The man told Billy that he should not move, he said. You will not talk in a loud voice, and neither will I. You see, I work for the government. There are two federal agents hiding outside. We're waiting for the rest of your gang. We're on to the Rumbali mob, and we know others will be here sometime soon to pick up the packages of cocaine that they left in the basement, so sit still. Take off your shoes, and Buck will retrieve them and bring them to me." Also, put your wallet and any keys you have into your shoes. Remember, I will use my revolver if you disobey what I ask you to do. Find these stories and more in the collection that was penned by author Carlos V. Cornejo. That's spelled Carlos. V-C-O-R-N-E-J-O. This book titled Different Coins in the Fountain, volume one of two. You also can locate it on Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, and your local retailer if you request it by name. For Author Talk, this is J. Douglas Barker.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
4: The title of the book, Einstein, Money, and Contentment A Unification of Physics, Economics, and Faith. And the author is Richard H. Palmquist. And Richard joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Richard. Hello there. Great to have you with us. Uh, this, this topic, which you say is a grand unification theory, you call it, and it all deals with everything that you and I can learn and everyone can learn from the behavior of electricity, correct? That is correct. Correct. So, you look at this not as a scientist, even though you must have some kind of understanding of electricity to make this kind of analogy.
5: Yes, I have a, a lay. I do have seven years of postgraduate edu- uh, education, but uh, my education is in liberal arts, English major, and theology. And uh, I have gained not whatever knowledge I have of cosmology and physics. Uh, simply by the Lincoln-esque method. (laughs) Reading about 200 books, in other words. But but, uh, I I believe my uh, observations to be valid, and I would like to see them challenged by academics. I'd like to see academics become interested in my book, and I'd like to see ordinary people recognize that my book can open the way to a new and more adequate method of problem-solving.
4: Which we all yes. look—we all look to. Uh, well, these scientists and, and other interested uh, individuals often look to Einstein. But you're questioning his view.
5: Well, I no, I, I yeah. Well, he had his his only view was that he wished before his death to discover the grand unification theory. His problem was he limited himself to the discipline of mathematics, not recognizing that mathematics is but one discipline. He was therefore limiting his capability to to gain his own goal because he did not take a grand view of the universe, instead he took a view only limited by mathematical concepts. Ironically, in my view, the grand unification simplicity I have observed does have an aspect of math involved in it, in that electricity can be understood and can be applied by uh, experts only with uh, a very sophisticated knowledge of algebra and other mathematical disciplines. Uh, Certainly trigonometry helps as you try to design an electrical circuit and to uh, apply it to useful purposes. But uh, the general um, aspects of how electricity works are as simple as any householder can understand who has ever screwed in a light bulb. You have a a light bulb that is measured in wattage. That speaks of the result you want from the light bulb. And that light bulb has the design result of 40 watts, 60 watts, 100 watts, 200 watts, depending upon the interplay between amperage and voltage within a wire resistance. So the four aspects of electricity are uh, amperage, that's the capability to work, voltage, the pressure that, that drives that amperage, and the resistance, the wire, the path within which those two operate toward a designed result. And uh, having said that, I have explained what I view to be the grand unification theory, if you study Cosmology, if you study uh, quantum physics or any of the other uh, sophisticated disciplines um, that are popular today, you'll find that there is always this pairing of two operators, of a thing and something that drives the thing within a limit toward a result. And that having been said, if you are listening carefully, you don't even need to read my book to understand how you can solve the problems of life. If you sit down with a piece of paper and say, what result do I wish to reach? What within this result is necessary? And what will drive that necessity? And how are the limitations of reality going to Cause this all to work. If you can analyze your problems in connection with that outline, you will um, solve problems on a much more dynamic and and uh, capable level. Uh, to uh, I don't want to suggest that people not buy the book, though. But if you if you <laughs> read the book, you get a very sophisticated and detailed analysis in 300 pages of how all this works together as it's applied to um, economics and uh, as it's applied to uh, faith. So um, that's uh, that's it in a nutshell.
4: Well, your title mm-hmm. breaks your book down, as you your title says, Einstein, Money, and Contentment. So you've broken your book down into three parts, Einstein, Money, and Contentment. And, of course, under those three parts, you have different chapters to uh, support... Uh, your your thesis in those three parts because, you know, Einstein is one thing and electricity is something that I think most of us uh, really don't understand. We flip the switch on, as you say, or we screw in the light bulb and all of a sudden we have this result but you're applying these things uh, much more than just a, a, a physics kind of uh, application because you're dealing with individual liberty, social relationships, life's purpose, life's source, life's breath. I mean, th- this is uh, beyond what we would normally see as we flip on the light switch. So help us understand where you're going with this. Well, if it's a grand unification theory, it's
5: going to. Uh, apply itself to to everything having to do with the sex life of a of a flea, to uh, how uh, space shots work, and um, and everything in between, including how individuals relate to each other, how families are structured, how um, how we uh, gain productivity and success in life, and um, certainly it, it applies itself to how governments should work. And, uh, and serve us. And um, uh, so it's just a principle that applies everywhere.
4: Because you take us to a place where, of course, most of us would say that's not possible when you say one and one makes three, but that's what you're advocating because you know how that works.
5: Well, it's, that, that's per, I perhaps... I was mistaken in beginning the book that way because I had many people complain to me that they stopped (laughs) reading after reading that sentence. (laughs) And, And so it's, but it's very simple in my mind because one, a thing, plus one, what drives that thing, that's those two things, but those two together make three, the result, which is all within the limit, the limits of reality. The, so, so there we have again the, the, um, oh, oh. The, the four, the four aspects. See, every everything, everything in life has uh, operates within limits, and what operates within those limits is something that's being driven by usually something else, and those uh, three then create a result. Now, that's just so simple, so completely simple, that I could be accused of being too naive. But when you look at all that is involved in the universe, you have to recognize that this basic concept applies itself in intricate, infinitely complex interrelationships where a a result in one context can become the thing in another. Or it can become the driving force in still another, or it can become the structure in still another. And, and all of these interrelationships is what cause, uh, causes the universe to be such a grandly complex um, Uh, 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 reality for us
4: so in every every one of your chapters you talk about under a certain heading that you're going to address you talk about structure, essence and dynamic in each one of your chapters you're explaining how structure works, how essence works and how dynamic works so give us an example I'm just going to pick out Uh, Under the Money, Part 2, which is uh, titled Money, you have Chapter 4, Individual Liberty. Tell us a little bit about how structure, essence, and dynamic work for individual liberty.
5: Well, individual liberty in our uh, social uh, climate is uh, determined by the limitations placed upon us by government. And uh, this... Uh, liberty we experience is just um, a, a latent opportunity until we wrap it in our life's purpose and within the, the within the the uh, boundaries set by us by for us by government we are at liberty to Hello, uh swing our arm so long as it doesn't hit the chin of our neighbor and uh applying that principle we uh then can find uh the prosperity of life that makes life worth living. That's the result
4: so again we we have this. This structure in your book, this format, that every uh, thing that you address, some aspect of life, and you apply these principles that you're teaching about electricity in every aspect of this. For example, you've got one under contentment, part three, life's purpose. Now we're getting into faith. And we have uh, worship, clear thinking, and habit as these, as the structure, essence, and dynamic to create life's purpose.
5: Now, of course, that all of that speaks to um, the the beginnings of everything, and we understand from the clear teaching of the Bible, the, the universally accepted in our society uh, verities of the biblical understanding of of the Creator. We know that the Creator himself, the Father, we call him the Father. Has provided the structure for the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, driven by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this being the result of this being, of course, the Godhead, all working together in harmony. Uh, and it is that image that the Creator implanted upon his creation, not just on us human beings in creation. We're, we're told that we're made in the image of God, okay, fine, that's true. But the whole universe is made in that very image. So you might say that electricity itself is but a pattern of God himself, because ohms resistance speaks to us of the father and amperage the thing the the physical substance speaks to us of the reality of the incarnate lord jesus christ and the um, voltage speaks of the power of the holy spirit and of course the, the concept of the godhead the unity of all three the unity of all three speaks to us of the unity we find in the workings out of electricity that creates wattage and lights our
4: rooms. So you're really trying to motivate us to just look at things from a different point of view, your point of view, obviously, uh, taking exception that Einstein didn't go further enough to uh, see the bigger picture, as you're calling it, the grand unification theory to bring together these three different aspects that applied electricity, structure, essence, and dynamic, and to help us uh, solve problems in a different way.
5: Yeah, that's, that's correct. I, I believe Einstein's helium or hot air balloon didn't rise high enough. <laughs> and, his, his, uh, and I don't mean that to be critical no, of him. No. I, believe, I believe Einstein, to have been a, a very reverent person, I think he acknowledged the the uh, presence of God in his life, and uh, had no problem with uh, with his own personal relationship with God. And, but uh, well, who knows? That's all very personal. But but the point is, his discipline from the time when he was a postal clerk <laughs> back in the old country uh, had to do with his unique understanding of of. Um, Mathematics and how he could express himself with numbers. And um, and it, it's, I mean, good grief. He, he contributed enough to society. Let's not be critical of him. It, it, but it is true, nevertheless, that he was frustrated to the point of his death by not being able to wrap his brain around what could become an understanding of everything. And, of course, our understanding of everything can be reduced to this simple formula that just happens to apply everywhere we look but that does not mean that we have have the arrogance to suggest that we have the, the capability intellectually or mentally to understand the, uh, inter, the intricate inner workings of all that makes up our universe. We can microscopically look into everything about life and see in it this working pattern of a thing being driven within a structure toward a result. That's universal. That is that is true in everything you touch, everything you can think about. Every aspect of, of all of life is driven by that microcosmic aspect. But when it comes to the macroscopic working out of the intricacies of all these interrelationships. Uh, we have to leave all of that up to God himself.
4: Well, thank you so much, Richard, for challenging our thinking and looking at life in a much different way, uh, definitely uh, using the analogy of the way electricity works. So the name of the book, the title of the book, Einstein, Money and Contentment, a unification of physics, economics, and faith, and we've been listening to the author Richard H. Palmquist. Richard, what is the best way to get your book?
5: Well, uh, it's available online in uh, the usual sources, and then some unusual sources as well. It's <laughs> soft, softback, hardback, and ebook formats.
4: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Richard, for joining us on Author Talk.
5: Thank you, Steve.